The reading for today is from Philippians. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And, found, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emmy. Morning, Arcadia. Hey, it's great to see you all. I have uh, been gone the last couple of uh, Sundays working, but gone nonetheless. Uh, two Sundays ago, I got to uh, preach at Redemption Peoria, which was a lot of fun. And uh, if you, re- well, some of you might recall, um, it was six and a half years ago that uh, Redemption Church Arizona out of Arcadia planted Redemption uh, Peoria. So it was fun to be able to go there and see some old familiar faces. Not old chronologically, but meaning in my past. But it was a lot of fun, and they send their greetings. I did my best to explain to them what avocado toast was. They still don't get it. But uh, anyway, it was good to see, uh, good to be there in Peoria. And then last week, uh, Jackie and I were in Iowa. We were teaching at a uh, marriage retreat, and I always say that. Um, the marriages in Iowa must be in big trouble if they have to bring in somebody all the way from Arizona to be able to help them out. Um, only four couples got divorced after this retreat, so that was, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It all went really well, but we're glad to be back. Um, fun to be back. We're starting a new series today in Advent. We'll get back into John after the first of the year. I do have a couple of announcements. So, by the way, we don't have a host during Advent, so I guess I'm the host. So, my name is Frank. If you're new here, we're glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that you are here. Uh, if you're wondering about Redemption Church, uh, what? Oh, see, I, yeah. I'm the worst host ever. If you're a fourth through sixth grader, you need to be excused, okay? <laughs> And you're, you're relieved now, I'm sure. Like, good, I thought I was going to have to stay in there for all that. Okay. <laughs> Woo! All right. So, good. All right. So, Redemption Church, if you're new to Redemption Church, we are one church with 10 congregations in Arizona. Uh, all of our congregations, though, have localized preaching, localized elders. Uh, we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And so we proclaim the gospel every week. We teach out of the Bible every week. We have a very high view of Scripture, um, but um, we also love community. And so that's kind of what we're about. If you'd like to know more, talk to one of us afterwards. We'd be glad to talk to you. Uh, that also means that I have some announcements. So here's the first announcement. We are back to having a Christmas choir this year. We're very excited about that, but it's not going to be Christmas Eve. We're going to do it Sunday the 12th. That means it's coming up in two Sundays, and we have our rehearsals coming up on the 8th and the 9th, and we would love for you to sign up for the Christmas choir, and no, you don't have to have the gift of singing. I'm going to be in the choir, so if I can do it, you all can do it, all right? And I'm just going to make sure I stand next to Ben Bear so that nobody hears me. That, that's, that's my plan. Anyway, so please contact uh, Tyler, uh, Tyler Thompson, 
We have too many Tylers around here. Contact Tyler Thompson, and he'll get you uh, um, set up for uh, the choir. And then uh, also on the 9th, though, we're having our uh, Christmas women's social event that'll be at the Bannister home. There's a uh, should be a slide for it, yeah, from 7 to 9 in the Bannister home, so please RSVP for that. You can go to our website to find out uh, more about that. That'll be on Thursday the 9th. And then I want to mention our Advent offering again. Every year, Redemption Church takes an offering for Advent. This is separate and, and over and above your regular giving during the year. The Advent offering goes to help uh, missions and, uh, and missionary partners uh, and organizations that we are partnering with, uh, either locally or globally. And so this year, we're going to divide the Advent offering three ways. Uh, we're going to give a third to uh, Alongside Ministries. Uh, they uh, have been partners of ours for years and years and years, and they really appreciate and are helped by our contribution that we give them almost every year, not every year, but we're going to do it again this year. Hope Women's Center is the second one that we're going to be donating a third to. Uh, we've been uh, getting really involved with Hope Women's Center for about the last 18 months, more and more deeply, and that's been very good for us, and uh, we want to be able to bless them with, with an offering as well. And then um, Immigrant Hope, which is uh, a ministry out of our Redemption West Mesa congregation, where they actually have attorneys who are set up to help immigrants uh, primarily from Mexico, go through the proper process of becoming naturalized citizens here. And, and it's a really wonderful ministry, really helpful in their particular context, in their neighborhood. And so a third of it is going to go there. And then last, we have, um, over and above even that, we have, if you saw as you came in, you saw all the toys and things being collected there. Uh, Redemption Alhambra, which is about five miles to our west, they have something every year called Affordable Christmas, where we collect, uh, many of the congregations, including us, collect uh, toys uh, for them, and then they sell them at a steep discount in an area that is severely under-resourced so that people who are less fortunate than us can have some semblance of a decent Christmas. And so we would like you to um, participate by bringing toys. There's a list online that you can look at. There's also at our Connect Desk uh, a sheet where you can find different things that you can buy and bring and set here. And then on December 7th, which is a Tuesday, so we have one more Sunday after this. Also, there are people here during the week. You can drop off during the week, but we have one more Sunday that you could bring the things. On December 7th, we're going to load everything up into a, a couple of trucks and take it over to Alhambra. And then on Saturday, December 11th, they have the affordable Christmas. So that's another way that you could serve is they have three different, um, what do you call it, shifts of people, about two, maybe three hours each shift where you actually work the affordable Christmas uh, for Alhambra over there. It's kind of a frenzied time, but it's a lot of fun uh, as well. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, talk to Andrea Hamilton, you can talk to Stephanie uh, Shoemate, our Director of Operations, and you can get involved that way as well. I think that's all the uh, announcements I have. Is that right, Stephanie? Did I do all right? Okay, so kind of okay. All right. So let me pray, and then we'll get into this Advent series. Father God, we're grateful uh, for how you've blessed us and taken care of us. You protect us and you provide for us. And we know that um, that's true, even in the midst of suffering and pain and tribulation and uh, challenges. And God, this world, no matter 
what we have in terms of worldly success. We know this world is harsh, and it's dark, and it's difficult. And so even when we have many of the comforts of life, we know that something isn't quite right. In fact, things are quite wrong. And so we know that, um, we know that you've planted that seed of eternity deep in our hearts, Scripture tells us. And so uh, we know there's something better. And what we'd like to do today during this service is proclaim that something better. And so help us as we do that. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about his coming the first time, the fact that he's going to come again, what that all means to us. And God, as we do that, I just pray that you'd move me out of the way, you'd move anybody else out of the way, so that your spirit will be clear in everything that we do today. We ask that you'd open the hearts and minds of of everybody who's here, to your word, to your truth, to your grace, to your love, and to your mercy. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, let me start by defining the word Advent, because I, I was a Christian for more than a decade, and I still didn't know what the word meant. Um, I could have looked it up, but I was waiting for somebody else to take care of that for me. Anyway, here it is. Generally, the word Advent means the arrival of a notable person or event, But specifically, it describes the second coming of Jesus because he is notable. And the event is notable because he brings with him the new Jerusalem and the final victory over Satan, sin, and death. You heard uh, Malia read today uh, a little bit about the already but not yet. We live in the already but not yet. Jesus has come once and he has already proclaimed victory over Satan, sin, and death. But we live in that not yet stage where we are still fighting the battles. We know it's won, but we're still fighting the battles. And that's really hard. And that's why this world is a challenge. And that's why we need Jesus and we need God's wisdom. But he will come again. Advent is when he comes again to claim that final victory so that there are no more tears. So that there are no more challenges. And we get to live with God forever and ever and ever in the new Jerusalem without sin. So we're going to do an Advent series. We do this every year. Each local redemption congregation gets those four weeks to do whatever they want during Advent. The rest of the year, we're pretty much on the same preaching calendar. We've been going through the Gospel of John. We'll get back to it again. But right now, all of the different uh, congregations are going to be doing their own Advent series. And ours is called The Aspects of Jesus. Now, I know that's not the most exciting title. I've never been gifted in coming up with titles, but I will tell you the topics that we're going to look at are incredible. They're terrific. So we're going to look at the incarnation today, and don't worry, we're going to define all of these words, but we're going to look at incarnation today. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the sacrifice, and then the new creation on the 12th, and then on the 19th, sanctification. And then just as a reminder, we will have Christmas Eve services. That's Friday night. Isn't Friday night the 24th, I think? So we'll be at 3.30 and 5. We're going back to the old times for Christmas Eve services. 3.30 and 5, they'll each be about 55 minutes. And then on the 26th, we'll have a standalone message. I think I'm going to talk about um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in that message. That's not finalized, but that's what I'm leaning toward. And then on January 2nd, we're going to continue the Tom Schrader tradition of looking at the past year and then talking about what's coming up in our present year. 
but we're going to do it a little bit different this year. Uh, I'm not going to preach it, but instead one of the elders is going to come up with me and we're going to have a conversation about it. So we're going to do one of those dueling preacher things and, and do it conversationally. We thought that would be a, a really good topic to be able to do that. So the incarnation today. Now I want to stop right now and just say, hey, I really want you to have your Bibles open or your phones open for this. The challenge today is going to be <clears throat> that this is not what we normally do where we say we're looking at one passage of Scripture. So you can just open your Bible and sit there. Today we're going to be looking at several passages that talk about the incarnation of Jesus. And so you're going to have to, if you were a kid that grew up in the church, I didn't grow up in the church, so I've only heard about this, but if you were a kid that grew up in the church, maybe you knew that at some point you had those speed Bible verse lookup games where the person would call out the Bible verse and then whoever got to the verse in their Bible first and then you had to prove it, you know, trust but verify. But anyway, then you had to prove it. Okay, <clears throat> and then you got a piece of candy or, or a Jesus statue or something. I don't know what it was that you got. But, but anyway, that's what we're going to be doing today. And, and, here's, and I know some of you are like, but you're going to have it on the screen, and it's too much work, and I have to turn, and I have to click something on my phone. Here's the deal, though. By doing this, you actually learn more about your Bible and where things are, and it becomes easier to start finding them. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful thing to be able to know how to use this book. That's really a good thing. I'll do my best to wait for you to find the passage. I'll help direct you to where it is. So please, if you have a Bible, it would be nice if you could get it out. And your phone is fine, too. Uh, it'll teach you how to click really fast. Okay, so here we go. Now, around church, you might hear the word incarnation bandied about because it's important to the Christian faith. So what is incarnation and what does it mean? Well, I'm a word nerd, in case you hadn't noticed. I love the study of words. And the root word in incarnation is carne, which means... I know some of you are like, that's kind of gross, isn't it? But it's true. It means flesh or meat, and in, carnation, in means from, out of, or to become. That's what that prefix means. So it means to become flesh or enfleshed. So what the incarnation means is that God is taking on all the characteristics and aspects of a human being except the sin while still remaining God, fully God, fully human. In other words, he became one of us in order to save us. That's the only way that we could be saved from our sin and reconciled to God. But the thing is, is that as he became a human, when he became a human, he never lost his divinity. He's fully God, fully man. He's not 50% God, 50% man. He's fully 100% God while being fully 100% man. That's Jesus. Now, how does he do that? Well, it's the virgin birth. So this is something you can go and study about the virgin birth. Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. So Mary got to have a sinless baby. And if, if Jesus is sinful, then he can't be the final perfect sacrifice. You have to have a perfect sacrifice in order to atone for sin. And by Jesus becoming not a lamb, although he's referenced as a lamb, but now Jesus is a human being. He's, no long, he's not animal flesh. He is our flesh. He is human flesh. By doing that, he becomes the final 
perfect sacrifice. Because he's human and because he's God, both at the same time. This is critical doctrine. And it's not that hard to understand cognitively. It might be a little bit mysterious. I'll talk more about that later. But this is how it, quote, works. This is how salvation works. There are seven things that Jesus says on the cross when he's, after he's been crucified. The seven sayings of Jesus. The one that I get the most excited about, I'll talk about any of them, but the one I get most excited about is when he says, it is finished. It is finished. He's saying, this is the end of the old covenant sacrificial system. This is the end of bringing goats and lambs and birds to the altar to sacrifice for sins. This is it. The old sacrificial system is done. I have taken care of it all. I have fulfilled the law, which nobody can do, and now I have died for those who have not been able to fill the law for their sin, atoning for their sin, so that you might be reconciled to God and have forgiveness for your salvation and live eternally in the new Jerusalem. It is finished are three of the most beautiful words in the Bible. I love that. And it only happens if he's sinless. Madeline Engel in A Stone for a Pillow wrote this. This is beautiful. The virgin birth has never been a major stumbling block in my struggle with Christianity. It's far less mind-boggling than the power of all creation stooping so low as to become one of us. So let's go through some passages that speak to this phenomenon and why it means so much. That's what we're going to do today. We're just going to be flipping around. So John chapter 1. That shouldn't be hard for those of you who have been here the last year and a half to find. John chapter 1 in the New Testament. The fourth of the Gospels. John 1. See, that's what I like to hear. I like to hear those pages turning. All right. Chapter 1 verse 14. And the word, notice word is capitalized, that's God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only son of, of the father, full of grace and truth. So that's the incarnation, the word, God, became flesh. It does not mean that he ceased being God, it does not mean that Jesus at any time Cease being God. Understand that when he was in the manger, which we celebrate at Christ Christmas time, the birth of Jesus, when he was in the manger, he was the creator God of the universe, still in charge. It's an amazing thing. I can't comprehend it. I look at our seven-month-old grandson, Jamie. He's not in charge of anything. I got to tell you something. But Jesus, the creator God of this universe, God became flesh, even as a baby. He's experienced everything that we've experienced except for the sin. So he's fully God, and he's fully man. And yet, in the early church, the first couple hundred years of the church, after Jesus was crucified and ascended, and uh, was, was raised and then ascended, and then the apostles went out and started planting churches, in the first couple hundred years of the early church, there was an early heresy. A heresy is a false teaching that was called docetism. Docetism. That word, again, the root word there, means uh, appears or seems. To appear as or seems. So there were people in the church who were falsely teaching 
that the truth about Jesus was that he was always God, but only appeared or seemed to be a human being, that he was a phantasm of some sort. I think I got the word right, but I've read that word. I never, I read it all the time, but I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I think it's phantasm. He was a phantasm of some sort, that he just appeared. He only, he only seemed to be human, but he wasn't really human, but he was. He was fully human. He was a carpenter prior to his ministry. He ate and, and played and did stuff and spoke and people touched him and he touched other people. He was fully human. Docetism was a heresy, an early heresy. You know, let me just throw this in here in case you're wondering about this. And if you're not, now you will. There is a modern docetism today, a modern docetism. Here's what the modern docetism claims. Biology only seems or appears to be natural or true. But in reality, biology is just a construct of our minds. That's a contemporary docetism. Docetism is not just an ancient heresy. People are still trying to sell this swampland of a theory. Don't believe it, either about Jesus or biology. But here is a key point about incarnation. Jesus did not just become a human. He dwelt with us. It says there that he dwelt with us. Literally the word, the Greek word translated there means he built a tabernacle and lived in it with us. He set up a home in our neighborhood and was with us. That's what John is telling us about Jesus. And he did this for the glory of God. It says right there, glory is a big word in the Gospel of John, in case you haven't noticed. He did this for the glory of God. He did it for our good so that we might be saved, but he did it for the glory of God. Our good and the glory of God. And he's the only son of God, John says in this. This verse is packed. He's the only son of God. And so, yes, this is an exclusive claim. He is the way. There is no other way. He is the truth. There is no other truth. He is the life. There is no other life. That's John 14, 6. And in case they didn't get it from just those three little clauses, Jesus went on to say, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Yeah, we're willing to say that this is exclusive. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. And he's full of grace and truth. And just like his divinity and humanity, he's not 50% grace and 50% truth. He is 100% grace and 100% truth. He never skimps on either and he never goes overboard on either. He's giving you both at the same time. And sometimes when he feels like he's harshing you out with your truth, with his truth, it's really his grace that's working. And sometimes you feel the grace washing over you, but it's actually his truth that's getting to you. That's the beauty of Jesus. 100% grace and truth. Now we go to the passage that Emmy read for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Uh, there's a study in uh, Christianity. You know, there's eschatology, the study of end times. Um, uh, there's soteriology, the study of salvation. There's also this thing called Christology, which is the study of who Christ is. In this passage that Amy read for us, that we're about to read again, is the most important passage for the study of Christ, for Christology that there is. It's Paul, who at the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians is saying, here's how you're supposed to live. 
as a follower of Christ, that you're to, you're to stay steadfast in your faith, that you're to be one in spirit with your faith community. And then in verse 3, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And then he says, look not only to your own interests, it's okay if you look to your own interests, but also remember that you have to look at other people's interests as well. And anytime your interests conflict with somebody else's interests, you need to consider somebody else's interests first. That's what he's saying there. Well, how do you do that? Well, in verses 5 through 11, he tells us how. He says, you have to have in you the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And he uses Jesus as his sermon illustration to explain to us how we're supposed to live. And here's the sermon illustration. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See the world through Jesus' eyes. Who... Though he was in the form of God, he's God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, when the Trinity is sitting around, I know I'm oversimplifying this, but when this Trinity is sitting around discussing the salvation of human beings, and the Father and the Spirit say to the Son, you're going to have to go down there and die on the cross. He's like, okay. He could have said, what are you talking about? I'm God. I'm staying up here with you. It's nice up here, okay? He said, no, I'm not going to consider that something to hang on to, to cling on to selfishly. I'm going to go and serve those sinners by dying for them. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. So there it is. He's enfleshed. He's incarnate. He's in the form of God. He's divine, but he's also in human form. He's fully human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If Jesus can submit to the cross, we can submit to others. That's what Paul is saying. And he says that again in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, I could do an hour just on that little clause, even death on a cross. There's so much there just in those few words. Paul adds those five words to emphasize the fact that he went to the cross for us. That's all I'll say there, but it's important. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on, on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul Miller, who is a wonderful Bible teacher, pastor, and theologian, has written a number of books. One of, a, one of them is called The J-Curve. Has anybody read about The J-Curve? Okay, you ought to read about it. It's really good. So Paul, uh, Paul Miller describes The J-Curve from Philippians chapter 2. He says, notice the way of Jesus is to descend, to go down, to humble himself, and that's what ultimately exalts you. That's the J-curve. Okay? There's a pastor who's written a number of books, another pastor who's written a number of books, best-selling books, all the time on the top, uh, top of the book-selling charts. The one book that he wrote that didn't sell very well was titled Descending into Greatness. Bad title if you're going to market a book. Who wants to descend into greatness? He wrote the whole book about Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He says the way to greatness is to humble yourself and descend and allow God to be in charge of your life. God is sovereign. 
Trust him with everything. He'll either cause or allow everything to happen in your life. And it's for your good and God's glory even when it stinks and you don't feel like it's for your good. Descending into greatness, the J curve. Athanasius of Alexandria, who was one of the early church fathers, so about 1800, 1900 years ago, he writes this. The Lord, Jesus, did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering people. For the one who would want to make a display, the thing would have been to just appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him and to be manifested in such a way that they could bear it. That's Athanasius writing about the incarnation. Now, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews, go further to your right after Philippians. Get out of the Pauline um, letters and just go to Hebrews. It's right after that little postcard called Philemon. Hebrews chapter 1. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. Some people think it was Paul. Um, There are other thoughts about who wrote it. The saying is, God only knows. Ha, ha, ha. That's true. Okay. But Hebrews is a wonderful book about, again, Christology and who Jesus is. And here at the very beginning of this letter, the author of Hebrews says, God always had a plan. He always had a plan for our salvation. Here it is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That that would be the Old Testament. Okay? Remember how most people in the Old Testament treated the prophets not very well. Okay? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That would be Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's, that's, our, that's the gospel. God became flesh. He became human so that he could be Sacrifice for our sin. He was raised from the tomb. He ascended to heaven and now he sits at the right hand waiting to come back again, waiting for the second coming. And in the midst of that, we are given God's grace and by faith we're saved by believing in him. That's the gospel. Jesus is the son of God, not in the sense of being created or born, but rather in the sense of being a son who is exactly like his father in all attributes and yet has a mission, purpose, and role that is different than his father. He's exactly like his father in essence, but he has a mission, role, and purpose that's different from his father. He came to be with us and to be like us so so as to go to the cross for us and save us. That was his mission, his purpose, his role. Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says it this way, For in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's the incarnation. Go a little bit further to your right, to 1 John. If you're wondering, 1 John is right before 2 John. Go to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through the beginning of 3. 
So John wrote his gospel, and then he wrote three letters. And then after all that was done, when John was probably in his 90s, Jesus appeared to John and said, here, take this down. And that became the book of Revelation, in case you're wondering. So John wrote about 30% of the New Testament. So here's what he write in chapter, writes in chapter 4 of 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, many false teachers have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now that's pretty self-explanatory. One of the closed-handed doctrinal tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus became a human. We don't negotiate on that. There's no docetism. There's no duality. Jesus became a human being. It's the only way the sacrifice works. It's the only way our sin can be atoned for. Now, move back to your left. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. This is, this is the first letter in the New Testament. You go uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, then the book of Acts, which Luke wrote as sort of his second act to the Gospel of Luke. And then we have the letters of the New Testament, and then it ends with Revelation. And Romans is the longest of the letters. That's why it's first. It's not, it wasn't the first one written chronologically. The first letter of the New Testament was either James or maybe Galatians or 1 Thessalonians. Romans was written towards uh, the late 50s, and it was written to the church in Rome, and this is a fully formed Paul writing about Jesus. Uh, some people call the book of Romans the Gospel of Paul. I, uh, one of my Bible teachers in college said that uh, Romans is the greatest literary document ever written in the history of the world. Romans, this book here. And it's interesting because Paul, when he writes, you'll notice that Paul does kind of the normal thing for first century, um, the first century Greco-Roman world when writing a letter. He would identify himself and then he would identify to whom he was writing. It was like, I'm Paul and I'm writing to you in Rome. But watch what happens here. I want you to see what happens. This is marvelous, I think. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, Right here, he should have said to all of you who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his saints. That's where you would put that. That's in that methodology of how you write a proper first century Mediterranean world letter. That's what you would do. But look what Paul does. Look at verse 2. He's gone completely bonkers. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about 
the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong in Jesus Christ to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's so excited to talk about who Jesus is. That he's in the flesh, but also come from the spirit. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's so excited to talk about Jesus, he can't even finish his salutation properly. What a grammatical faux pas by the Apostle Paul. That's how excited he is about the fact that God became a human and came down and gave his life for us. Imagine just being in that room with Paul as he's writing that. I mean, he's just going to, he's like, I, I, I can't believe the good news here. And I have to get to it right away. It's, it's, it's amazing. Now, you may wonder, why is it essential that the Savior be enfleshed? I think we can go back to Hebrews. This is the last time I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible. Now, go back to Hebrews chapter 4. We can go back to Hebrews chapter 4, and I think we can get our answer there. So Hebrews chapter 4, the last three verses of Hebrews. Chapter 4. And there's a sense in which the writer of Hebrews at this point has this same gospel ecstasy that Paul had at the beginning of, cha- of Romans chapter 1. You, you can just sense that he, the writer has been building to this and now he just lays it all out. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every... Respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, Jesus came to be us so that he could experience what it was like to be us In every way, including temptation, although he's without sin, his holy nature of being God would not allow him to sin, though he was tempted. So he's experienced everything that we have. And you may say, bah, except except he hasn't experienced the, the dread of sinning and having to live with that. No, he just went to the cross and paid the price. That's all he did. He was crucified for our sin. So he never gave in to sin but he paid for our sin. It's the greatest example, the the most perfect and beautiful illustration of forgiveness where somebody offends, and believe me, I know, I've been offended, you've been offended, we've been sinned against, but somebody sins against you, somebody offends you, and by forgiving them, you're saying, I'm going to not only absorb the offense of what you've done to me, but now I'm also going to eat the offense by saying, I forgive you. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Because every time we sin, do we say, we're sinning against God. We're sinning against others as well and ourselves. We're sinning against ourselves. But we're sinning against God. We're sinning specifically against Jesus on the cross right there. 
And yet he stays on the cross to pay for those sins for us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And then he says, and because of that, you now, I now have confidence. I can boldly come to Jesus and say, okay, I'm not worthy, but you paid the price. Let me have your grace and mercy. I receive your love. With boldness, not with trepidation, with boldness, with confidence, with assurance that what God is going to do is accept us and not turn us away. And he says, you're going to do that in your time of need. That, that phrase there, time of need, is both eternal and temporal. In the eternal sense, it's the essential eternal need of our reconciliation with God. If we die unreconciled to God because we did not embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we will be separated from him eternally, not reconciled. And that's not a good thing. So our eternal time of need is taken care of, but also our temporal, this world need is taken care of. Our need for wisdom and grace to live in a broken and dark and evil world. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5. He specifically says, look, the only way you're going to be able to navigate your way through this broken, fallen, sinful world is by the wisdom of God and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those are great gifts also for our temporal need as well. Will it be easy? No. The Bible never says this is going to be easy. The Bible does not have a book called Oprah in here. Okay, It just doesn't. Jesus, last week, Jesus said, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's a promise of God. You will have trouble. He's being honest with us. He's telling us the truth. Isn't that nice? But take heart. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. C.S. Lewis in Miracles writes this. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests the character and significance of the incarnation. So the point of the incarnation, I think uh, Augustine, Augustine, those of you from Florida maybe know how to pronounce it correctly. Augustine of, Athena, of, of uh, Hippo sums it up well. Listen to this quote. Man's maker, the creator, was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light might sleep, that the way might be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witnesses, that the teacher might be bitten, beaten with whips, and the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die, that we would live. God becomes flesh. I know that's a mystery. 
I know that we can explain it and talk about it, but it's still a mystery. How did God become flesh? Well, that's where grace and faith come in. God became flesh so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, so that we could be reconciled to the Father. But we still need the Holy Spirit to give us the grace to open up our hearts to that reality because it is a mystery that that would happen. And that's what grace is. It's grace opening us up, opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our hearts, opening our minds to the truth of who Jesus is, to the truth of the Trinity, Trinity, to the truth of the gospel, that we might have faith then, that's where faith comes in, that we would have faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the sacrifice for our sins, and he is alive and well today, and he's waiting to come back and take us to the new Jerusalem. That's a beautiful thing, and that is good news for all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's come to give us that glory back. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you that however that happened, whatever that looked like in your realm in heaven, that discussion or the nod of the heads or whatever it is, God, we're thankful that it happened. Because in that, we have reconciliation to you. And though we're still here fighting these battles and having to put up with really challenging stuff, God, we thank you that you have given us the strength and the power, the wisdom and the insight, the grace and the mercy to be able to do that. Thank you for loving us like that. Thank you for loving us in a way that we just simply cannot comprehend and yet we are called to. God, thank you for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So... um, we're starting to transition a little bit back into pre-COVID communion. So if we could have our communion servers come up. We still have the communion kits, but now we're going to add the element of having somebody serve it to you. So we're getting there. <laughs> okay. So if the uh, servers would come up. This is something we do every week, and we don't do it because it's a ritual or a tradition. We do it because we believe that Scripture says that every time we gather as a faith community, we're called to do this. Because we're called to remember and proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again by his supper. The the bread, the wafer, which is his body, the wine, the juice, which is the blood of the new covenant, shed for the remission of our sins. In that last supper that he had with his disciples, he explained it all. And he said, come, take. And when we do this, we're confessing our need for a Savior. But we're also celebrating the fact that God has given us his Savior, his Son. So confession and celebration when we come forward to receive these elements. And as you head back to your, uh, your seat, You can stand, you can sit, take the elements as you feel led to take them. If you feel led and you can, you can then stand and and finish singing with the band. And then we'll wrap up our service after that. Let's do that now.
What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch our keeping? What child is this who lay on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch our keeping. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds call.
and joy to the world the Lord is come let earth receive her King let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing start to Advent together. Thank you for being here today. Let me read for us our benediction. May you be filled with the wonder of Mary, the obedience of Joseph, the joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, the determination of the magi, and the peace of Jesus Christ, the child. And may the Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bless you both now, today, and forevermore. Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus.